so tonight we are going to look at Job's darkness. Uh, this is Job chapter 3. And uh, Job has been a pillar of faith for all of us. We, you know, a lot of us who have ever heard about the book of Job, studied the book of Job, we celebrate the passages that, you know, Job worships in the midst of difficulty and naked I came into the world and naked I'm going to leave it. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And that birthed the song that we, many of us know, you give and take away. You know, my heart will choose to say, blessed be your name. That came right out of the book of Job, right? And then Satan said, well, okay, you, you allowed me to take away everything that he had, his estate, his family, and everything, but let me add him, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give in exchange for his life. You let me touch him. You let me get to him, to his health, to his person, and he'll surely curse you to your face. And so God says, go, he is in your power, but you cannot take his life. And Satan went at Job now directly. This wasn't weather. It wasn't the Sabians or a people group. It was Satan inflicting directly upon Job boils, oozing boils from the bottom of his feet to the crown of his head. And we saw a picture of Job where he is sitting on the ash heap of the probably what is the dump outside the city where they would burn trash and they would have the ashes and they would have broken pottery there. And Job has a piece of broken pottery and he's scraping probably the pus of those boils and he's just sitting there. And his wife comes to him, remember, as one remaining family member and she doesn't have so, so, such encouraging words for him. And it's almost like, you know, does, it's like the final blow into his heart. Like, can a, can, the guy, can a guy suffer anymore? And then we read about his three friends, and they hear about his calamity. And they, they organize uh, together, and they come to, to greet him. And it's probably been weeks since everything has happened. Word had to get to them, then they had to organize, and they had to come to Job. And they come to Job, and they sat there. And nobody spoke a word for seven days and seven nights. That's where we've come so far. That's a quick recap. Now, seven days in the Bible is a period of time that was used for mourning. So sometimes when uh, you've heard about seven-day wedding feasts, well, seven days also was used in some cases for mourning or to memorialize a person or to mourn over them. And it may well be, and there's a few uh, scriptures that I have in my notes uh, from 1 Samuel and one other place, but it doesn't say that it was silence. It says that they mourned for seven days, but it doesn't say they were, that there was silence. And there's other places where the mourning actually took place for longer. So the silence was an interesting thing, and we, we began to try to make some comments about, okay, well, how do we minister to people when they've gone through a tragedy? And sometimes... You know, we just need to be with people. And we talked about some different lessons that we could learn about when someone's gone through a tragedy. How do we best minister to that person? What do we say? What don't we say? You know, all of those things. And we learned some lessons last week. That was the end of chapter 2. And I mentioned to you that the seven days of silence, um, you know, while commendable and maybe even an ancient practice, could have been a bit weird for Job. Because nobody was saying anything, and it's one thing to be quiet for a little time, but seven days of silence, you know, that's, that's a long time. And it turns out that Job chapter 3 is Job breaking the silence. He's the one that talks first, and maybe that's appropriate. <laughs> maybe the person that's mourning is the person that should be talking first. Let's pray. Lord, as we get into Job's darkness, probably the darkest chapter in the whole book of Job, we... Just pray that you would show us what you have for us tonight. Because if we're not in a dark place tonight, we will be or we have been. And we can all relate to this, Lord, in one way or another. Or we may be trying to minister to someone who's in a dark place. Whatever it may be, we know there's lessons that you have for us tonight. This chapter is in the Bible for a reason. The Holy Spirit breathed it out, so we want to take it in. So we just have open hearts to what you would say to us tonight. Equip us to be more like you, to have your heart in all things that we do. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. 
afterward, Job 3.1, that is after the seven days at the end of chapter 2, as they didn't speak, Job breaks the silence. Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth, and Job said. Now, Satan had said to God, if you allow me at him, he will surely curse you to your face. And then Job's wife became a mouthpiece for the enemy, sadly, and said, curse God and die. Another temptation, another barb that came at Job. And Job did not. He corrected his wife lovingly, but straightforwardly. He said, you're speaking as one of the foolish women. Should we accept good things from God and not adversity? And in all these things, Job did not sin, nor did he curse God. And in chapter 3, he will not curse God as well. But he will do something that is very human and very, uh, I think, apropos of anybody who's ever been through deep emotion, deep trial, where you're asking questions. And this is considered, uh, from verse 3 on, Hebrew poetry. So there's some, what we might call, uh, figures of speech and exaggeration that have to be taken into account. And just for you Bible students, this is why you don't use Job or Ecclesiastes necessarily to make doctrinal uh, positions on because some of what happens in Ecclesiastes is Solomon, who is looking at life from the perspective of a man who's really disfellowship with God. Somewhere along the way, because of his choices, he's far away from God and he's looking at life essentially without God. So a lot of the statements that he makes in Ecclesiastes are not statements that you want to build doctrine on, as well as you have to consider this when you study the book of Job. Job is going to give what writers would call a soliloquy. He's going to give a speech, but it's not necessarily to his friends, and it's not even necessarily spoken to God. It is a speech, but it could be a speech just for him talking to himself. Have you ever been there before where you gave a speech to yourself and you ran through all the why questions and you'd never maybe speak the speech to someone else or maybe you would just speak it to your closest friends, but that's kind of what Job is doing here. And it starts out that he doesn't curse God. That's what the enemy said he would do. Satan essentially guaranteed he would, but he did not. But he did curse the day of his birth, from my notes. Job 3 is a reminder that any believer can hit a very dark low. Job will cry out from the agony and depths of his soul. This writer says, a true Christian believer may be taken by God through times of deep and dark despair. This may happen to a man or a woman who is affirmed by God as a believer before the darkness. He or she may be taken through this darkness even though he or she has not fallen into sin or backslidden from faith in Jesus Christ. This is a very important truth. What we have to understand is that in our humanity, sometimes when we're trying to make sense of deep, profound, mysterious things, we can have dialogue with ourselves that doesn't necessarily mean that we've sinned or we've backslidden, or we don't believe in God anymore. It just means that we're asking some deep, hard questions. And that is okay. I think the Psalms allow for that. Sometimes David largely, most, most of the Psalms are credited to David, will take us on journeys where he says, my tears have been my food day and night, where, when they say, where is your God? And my God, my God, Psalm 22, why have you forsaken me? And David on the run, and David asking questions, and David sometimes praying that God would break people's teeth, and, and you're like, really? Are you supposed to pray that way? I don't know. Anyway, and, but then he'll come back, and he'll even do some self-talk, like, why are you in despair, oh my soul? Put your hope in God, Psalm 42. So sometimes we have to just do that. Sometimes we have to acknowledge, you know what? I don't get it, Lord. I don't know what you're doing. I'm struggling. And look, Job curses the day that he was born. That's, you know you're at a bummer place when that happens, right? When you, when you make a statement like, I wish I had never been born. 
wow, but maybe you've done that before. Maybe you've looked back and, and, and that's where you've been. The word complaint will be used in the book of Job. Uh, I read a story about Charles Spurgeon. He was the prince of pe preachers back in the day. Eloquent, witty, uh, deep. Some of you have read Spurgeon's uh, uh, devotionals, and you know how deep he was. And at one point, he says, he gets news that there's a woman down the street from him that has cancer. And he's in a funk. He's in a deep place. He's in a depression. And they say of Spurgeon that he went through times of depression. And he gets news of this woman who's joyfully dealing with a cancer battle. And he says, here I am. As far as I know, I'm healthy. I'm paraphrasing. And this woman, I hear a report of this woman who's joyfully facing her battle with cancer. And I'm miserable sitting on my bed and there's nothing essentially wrong with me. And then he looks at himself and says, or he says to a friend, what's wrong with me? Now that's Spurgeon. That, that's where, when preachers say, you know, Spurgeon used to sit in his study and he would write something and crumple it up and start over again. I heard Alistair Begg say, I wish I just had some of those crumpled up pieces of paper. Because Spurgeon was deep. That's who we're talking about, friends. And David went through that and other Bible characters have gone through that. And so let's not lose sight of the fact that our heroes of the Bible, as much as we laud Job for, you know, uh, I'll, I'm going to praise the Lord. Naked I came into the world. Naked I'm going to leave it. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And correcting his wife. And he doesn't sin against God. Look, the rest of the book's going to give you an insight into Job. And Job's got a lot of questions. And he's going to complain. And he's going to question. And he doesn't do what Satan said he would do. But Job has a lot of things that he struggles with, and you may as well. See, if you're going to take the whole book of Job, then you've got to take chapters 1 and 2 with the rest of it as well, where there are questions. And we have questions. Just like Shane said earlier, we have questions about how God works and when he heals and when he doesn't and all that stuff. Ecclesiastes 3, 4 says, There's a time to weep and a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn and a time to dance. Look, if you're going to live this life and live it authentically, there's going to be times when you feel like crying and times when you're laughing. There's going to be times when you feel like mourning and times when you feel like dancing. And that's going to be appropriate, and sometimes it's going to happen in one day. <laughs> Can I get a witness? Anybody ever done all of those things in one day? You laughed one moment, you cried the next you're mourning one moment, maybe you're over a news report, and then you, maybe you got some good news, or you went to an event, and you danced, and that's just life. So Job has been an incredible model of faith, but now it's all boiled over. Now he's waited perhaps for weeks, sitting there, dealing. Look, everything that, that's bad, all that the trial that has happened to Job, nothing else bad's going to happen to him that gets recorded here. So he's faced the onslaught. But some of you are thinking, well, what else could go wrong with the guy? He's lost everything, right? Even his wife threw the barb at him. You know, what more could he lose? But for the rest of the book, he won't. There's no more losses. However, he is still suffering. He's still suffering with the uh, physical ailments that he's the blow that's come to him from Satan, he's still struggling emotionally. He's struggling with grieving, uh, trying to make sense of his trial. This is Job's, if I could put it this way, his dark night. But Job's story will get better. At the end of the book, he is restored. And you have to keep that in mind when you read these early chapters. Because when we go through trials, see if this resonates with you. Sometimes it feels like our trials will never end. And when you are in a trial, whether it's physical suffering or emotional distress or whatever you face, oftentimes in the midst of that trial, if it's gone on for a while or even if it's been a short stint, it can feel like your trial is never going to end. And can I say to you, all trials do end <laughs> one way or the other, <laughs> right? So be of good cheer. You are in God's capable hands, 
And God is working all things together for what? For good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. He is conforming us into the image of Jesus. And to do so, he uses trials in our lives. I cannot tell you I understand the why, and I don't understand often even the what. But I know God has made promises to you and to me that he is good and that his intentions for us are good. If you want the scriptures on the seven days of mourning, Genesis 50, verse 10, and 1 Samuel 31, 13. Job curses the day of his birth. And he said, Let the day perish, Job 3, 3, on which I was to be born, and the night which said a boy is conceived. May that day be darkness. Let not God above care for it, nor light shine on it. Notice God's name is there. Job is, is not turned away from the faith. He knows God is there. He knows even God is behind what has happened. But his tone has changed. Whereas he was strong in chapter 1, whereas he corrected his wife and talked about accepting good and adversity from God, don't be foolish, chapter 2. Now in chapter 3, the floodgates open. And could it be that Job sets the tone for his friend's comments. See, in chapters 1 and 2, we laud him, we applaud him. Well done, Job. You're a model, a pillar of faith. But in chapter 3, he's the first one to speak. And then the rest of the book is a back and forth between him and his friends and speeches that are recorded that give us some insight into uh, you know, life and all of that. But sometimes, here's an application point. The way we respond to a trial sets the tone for our friends and family. And I know that some of you could say, there's been times when I faced a trial and I faced it faith-filled as a believer and I had a good attitude and uh, I set the tone and it was pretty good. But there's been other times when I was just in a terrible place and I was walking around whining and complaining and woe is me and why is me and woe to and the people and the places and and man you know we tend to jump on board with whatever direction things are moving have you ever noticed when someone actually like I have a neighbor that does this all the time uh, I'll he'll ask me something and we'll, we'll have a dialogue a little bit and I'll say something and it won't be like the most positive thing and then he'll bring a positive spin on it. I'm like, man, John, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> I, I'm glad you think that. Have you ever noticed that someone can just all of a sudden turn something in a positive way and you're like, yeah, you know, I wanted to go all the way down pity lane. Why couldn't you go with me? Okay, we're going to make the right turn right now, you know, and, and we can choose some of that. But I am not going to blame Job for what he goes through right now. And so remember, some of this is uh, from verse 3 is poetry. But Job's opening salvo is, let the day of my birth die. Let it be erased from the record. It would appear that this family regularly celebrated, perhaps even birthdays. We, we surmise that it could have been birthdays or harvest celebrations. Regularly they got together. But Job says, let's not do that anymore. Don't celebrate the day of my birth anymore. Now, some of you are right there because you don't want to celebrate birthdays anymore, right? Some of you are like, we're like, uh, what are you doing for your birthday? And you're like, uh, I don't want to talk about it. What do you mean you don't want to talk about it? Uh, I'm not acknowledging birthdays any longer. I stopped at uh, 39. Now, some of you know that I came up here and I told you my wife and I were celebrating a 29th wedding anniversary on Sunday and appreciate your encouragement and all. You know that we got married when we were 10, right? <laughs> she was a child bride. I was, it was an arranged marriage. We were 10. No, just kidding. We weren't. We were, we were 12. Anyway. <laughs> Have you ever had a really bad birthday? Have you ever... Just had one of those ones that just went south, man. And like maybe people forgot about your birthday or maybe you thought that the plans would be a little bit more grandiose, a uh, little bit more 
And then all of a sudden, <whistles> birthday didn't go too well. And you're like, man, <laughs> that, that's a bummer. Well, Job says, I want the day of my birth to perish. I want it to go out of existence. I want it to die. In fact, I want the night of my conception, verse 3, end of the verse, when somebody said a boy is conceived when the pregnancy test was affirmative and it would be a normal time of joy, I want that day to be to perish. I want it to be considered a day of darkness. I don't even want God to acknowledge it. I don't want any light, light to shine on it. I want it gone. Now this is the darkest chapter in the book of Job. He says, let Deep darkness, ESV, let darkness, New American Standard, and black gloom claim it. Now, those of you who have had a 50th birthday party, you know they bring these black balloons to your birthday party. It's, it's hard enough to consider that you've entered into the decade of senior discounts, Denny's, uh, what's that one organization that sends you stuff? Who is it? AARP. You're like, no! That's, that's just, when that thing comes in the mail, you're like, send it back. That's the wrong address. AARP. Give me a break. What are they going to send me? Metamucil next? And, <laughs> and they, then they give you these balloons, and it's like this dark. And they're, they're, the music isn't like an upbeat disco or something like that. It's more like... <laughs> it's hard. I don't know how old Job is, but he says, let darkness and black gloom claim it. Let a cloud settle on it. This is <laughs> reminiscent of Schlepprock for those of you who watch the Flintstones. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. Let the darkness of the shadow of death, the darkness of a mine shaft, says one writer. Let it, let it claim it. Look at the action words. Let it settle on it. Let it terrify it. Turn over to chapter 10. Job gives us a little bit more. Chapter 10, look at verse 17. He says, Thou dost renew thy witness against me, he's speaking to God, and increase thine anger toward me. Hardship after hardship is with me, 1018. When, why then hast thou brought me out of the womb? Would, would that I had died and no eye had seen me. I should have been as though I had not been carried from womb to tomb. Would he not let my few days alone withdraw from me that I may have a little cheer before I go and I shall not return to the land of darkness and to deep shadow? That's the land of death. The land of utter gloom as, as darkness itself, of deep shadow without order and which shines as the darkness. Job is looking at the, his birthday and he's saying, I wish it was just taken out of the record books. Back to Job chapter 3. As for that night, the night I was conceived, or the night of my birth, you can reference verse 3. Let darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of months. In poetic language, Job pictures the darkness claiming the days of his conception and birth. You can almost picture a thick, dark cloud descending and terrifying Job's parents. The night is personified and comes and seizes the child or descends upon the calendar with a black permanent marker to erase that day of the year or even that month forever. That's what Job is saying. Let it be off the calendar forever. Whatever your birthday would be or is, that's what Job is saying. Let darkness just come and snatch the date off the calendar so that it will never be there again. In fact, let it be so that it never existed at all. One writer says, Life is so painful that Job wishes the roots of his existence had been recaptured by death and darkness. That he had never existed in the presence of God. He wishes God would rewind the tape of creation and undo the part that led to his existence. 
Behold, let that night be barren, seven. Let no joyful shout enter it. Let those who, let those curse it who curse the day who are prepared to rouse Leviathan. Let that night be barren. In Jewish culture, and I'm sure in many of the ancient cultures, barrenness was seen as minimally the disfavor of God, but even potentially the curse of God. The Bible does say in the Old Testament that God opens and closes the womb. So in Genesis 30, Rachel saw that she bore no children to Jacob, and she became jealous of her sister Leah. And she said these famous words in Genesis 30, verse 1 to Jacob. She said, Give me children or else I die. And Jacob responded, he got angry and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Rachel's barrenness was devastating. She was beautiful but barren, jealous of her sister. And barrenness was something that was seen as a terrible blight. Now, some of you are thinking, you can take my kids for a week if you want to. I'm okay with that, <laughs> right? But she was just in this desperate place of barrenness. But rather than barrenness being a curse, Job celebrates it as a blessing in verse 7. He said, I wish that night was just a night of barrenness and not conception. I wish there was never a joyful shout at the birth announcement of me. In fact, I'll take it a step further, eight. Let those curse it who curse the day. <clears throat> he may be speaking of soothsayers or ancient uh, witches or magicians who are prepared to rouse Leviathan. Now, Leviathan is, uh, gets a lot of treatment in a later chapter in the book of Job, chapter 41. But Leviathan was known as an ancient serpent or dragon. The Leviathan symbol is of a gliding or coiling serpent drawn from Canaanite myths, here symbolizing the wicked nation of Egypt in Isaiah chapter 27. In Ugaritic myths, Leviathan is a mythological dragon, a deity symbolized by chaos. And the ancients said that in the creation of the world, Leviathan opposed the creator. And as the creator was attempting to make the world, this is mythology, but this, this is what they thought, that as the creator God began to create the world, this mythical sea monster, Leviathan, coiled up and fought the creator to try to keep him from making anything in the world. And Job has gotten so desperate that he says, and I, again, he's speaking in exaggeration and poetry, I wish that one of these soothsayers would have the power to rise, raise up Leviathan so that he could fight God specifically on the day of my birth. Could he just win one time on the calendar day that marked my conception or birth? Can Leviathan just win that one battle against God? Of course, that's, it's just mythology, but that's how desperate Job has gotten. Now, interestingly enough, Bible students, in the Bible, the devil is depicted in two ways, primary ways. He's depicted as a serpent in Genesis 3, who's at the tree, right? May have possessed the serpent. And then in Revelation 12, he's depicted as what? A great red dragon. And in Revelation 12, this is around verses 3 and 4 and then into verse 7. When the male child is going to be birthed, the Messiah that will save Israel, the dragon is depicted as waiting to devour the child. And God, of course, intervenes and rescues the child. And so maybe, just maybe, we have an indication that Job understands where much of this chaos is coming from. It's coming from the enemy. And his prayer or his soliloquy seems to be at this point, I wish that the devil could have opposed God or this mythical serpent at this moment just in my birth situation. I wish that I never existed at all. How many of you have watched those movies? There's a couple of classic movies where 
people have that wish, you know. I'm such a failure, and, and I just wish that I had never been born. And <laughs> there you go. You're, okay, you're out of existence. And the famous one we all watch at Christmas is It's a Wonderful Life, right? And so in that movie, he gets his wish. And, okay, you never existed, and the wind blows. <laughs> And the angel's name is Clarence, right? And okay, you're out of existence. That's it. And so he thinks that's going to solve his problems. But then he gets to see the town and the people as if he never existed. And the whole story is about how huge of an impact his life has made. He doesn't realize that he's had a wonderful life. He had all these dreams that never came to pass. But he touched so many people. And remember, at the end of the movie... He's been accused of something, and it's been total manipulation. He, he didn't do anything wrong. But anyway, at the end of the movie, all the people that he's blessed start bringing in money. And his brother a, a, arrives from the war, and his brother is alive because of what he did earlier in saving him. And his brother, you know, looks at what everybody's given, looks at the honor that they're giving to him, and he says, here's my brother. He's the richest man around. Because he had an incredible impact on many people. And sometimes in life, you guys, when we're in the midst of a pit of darkness, we get tunnel vision. And we forget all the things that God has done and is doing in our lives and will do. And we get the devil wants us to get tunnel vision so that we think our life has no value. He wants you to feel valueless. But you have great value in God's eyes, right? But in the midst of a trial, everything gets magnified. And we start thinking, my life is meaningless. I should just, I'm, I'm more of a pain than I am a gain for people. Just, just let me go out of existence. And this is at the heart of suicide. Where the enemy comes to people and says to people, yeah, you are worthless. You should just check out. And sadly, sometimes we get so overwhelmed with our problems that people go there. I don't think Job is going there, but I think Job is certainly at his wit's end with all that's happened to him. He says in another image, 9, let the stars of its twilight be darkened. He uses now uh, day of the Lord imagery. The stars of its twilight be darkened. Like let the light go out of the stars. Let it wait for light but have none. Neither let it see the breaking dawn. Because it did not shut the opening of my mother's womb or hide trouble from my eyes. Job says, I wish like in the day, one of the plagues on Egypt when there was darkness or the day of the Lord in Joel 2.10 and 3.15 or Matthew 24.29, let the stars no longer shine their light because I wish that my mom's womb was just closed off because then I wouldn't have seen all the trouble that I've seen. Have you ever uh, had a moment in your life where you saw something and you said to yourself, I wish I had never seen that. Can you imagine all that Job could be replaying? He's lost 10 children. He's lost his estate, servants, uh, you know, just virtually everything in his life. He could even be rewinding the tape of his wife's comment to him. He's got to be just overwhelmed. Some of the spirituals that came out of African-American slavery, the uh, terrible plight in our country where people were so abused and mistreated, uh, some of the spirituals came out of that time. And I think one of the ones was, nobody knows the trouble that I've seen. Go tell it on the mountain. And even swing low, sweet chariot coming forward to carry me home. And there were people who, in the midst of suffering and, uh, you know, how terrible humans can be to one another, began to find hope in spiritual songs. But a lot of those songs were about escaping the uh, plight that they were going through by ending up in heaven. And Job says, why did I not die 11 at birth? Come forth from my mother's womb or come forth from the womb and expire. Why wasn't I stillborn? 
Why didn't I just come out dead? Now, any of you who have gone through something like this know how terrible that is. And we could say, this is terrible. Why would Job ever say something like this? But let's remember that Job is on a journey. And it is easy to watch somebody else's pain from the stands. Amen? You see a player get hurt in a ball game and you go, ooh, ow. And some people like to watch those replays of the broken bones. Uh, you know, hey, look at this. Look at Could you see a leg ever bend that way? <laughs> I won't mention any names, but there's certain people that like to show those that I know. And I don't like to look at those. I, no, thank you. Uh, I don't want to see that. Right? Well, Job is a man. He's not a piece of wood. He's not a block of stone. He has emotion. He says, why did the knees... See, see the why questions begin to frame here? Why did the knees receive me? Why the breast that I should suck? Okay, when I was born, why did I get life-sustaining milk from my mother? Why did that happen? Now, all of us would say that's so extreme, so ridiculous, but this is where Job is. Okay, if the womb didn't shut me off, then, then I wish I wouldn't have gotten any milk, so then I would have died. Man, this guy is at a low place. He longs to be in the place of the dead. For now I would have lain down and been quiet, 13. I would have slept then. I would have been at rest with kings and with counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves. Now he's picturing the grave, sometimes pictured as sleep in the Bible. Remember, we're not going to get our theology about the afterlife from Job, but he says, I, then I would have rested it had I died with kings and with counselors of the earth who built, rebuilt ruins for themselves. Ruins is a word fresh on the lips of Job. His life is a rubble. In fact, he may be thinking underneath the surface here, could my life ever be rebuilt again? And some of you who have come out of trials are at that point where now you're at the fork in the road and you're asking questions about can my life be rebuilt again? But you're saying in your soul, that's going to be some hard work, right? Because to rebuild ruins is not easy work. There's a whole cleanup job, and then you got to reconstruct, right? And it can be hard. And some of you may be at a rebuilding point in your life. And if you are, hang in there, because God is in the rebuilding business. Thank you. The rubble sits. It's in the distance. Job may have been staring at the rubble of his estate for weeks. Or with the princes who had gold, who were filling their houses with silver, 16, or like a miscarriage, which is discarded. He's, he's going through the list of people who would be in like a cemetery. Then I would not be. As infants that never saw light. They're the wicked there in the grave they cease from raging. They stop their stuff. There in the grave or a shield, the weary are at rest. You get to rest from all the pain of this life. The ancients used to do this. They would say that we, we shouldn't necessarily celebrate births of people because when, you, when a baby's born, we can see all the trouble that's ahead of them. Rather, we should celebrate death because that's when you're free. You remember the Columbine shootings? Was it Dylan Klebold and can't remember the other guy's name? There's video, and they send a video to their parents the morning that they go into Columbine and shoot all those people. And they tell, they say in the video to their parents, get this, mom and dad, we're about to do this dastardly deed, but we're going to a better place. They knew they were going to die. Really? Have you ever heard some of your friends, uh, you're at a service where you're, you have a pretty good idea that the person that is being honored that day was not a Christian? And people are saying, oh, they're looking down on us right now. I remember some years ago, I was listening to uh, some sports radio, and they're having a discussion about Harry Carey. Harry Carey was the Cubs announcer for many years. I don't know Harry's spiritual state, but they were interviewing his son. 
and Harry had just passed away. And he was known to abuse alcohol is one of the stories that I heard about him. But anyway, so they're interviewing the son, and, and you know, they're on, on sports talk radio. So a secular station, they're like, oh, old Harry, he's looking down on us right now. Cubs win. Cubs win. Take me out to the, you know, we're all, we all have those memories of Harry Carey, right? However, the son said something shocking. He said, maybe my dad's looking up at us right now. And you're like, whoa, whoa. His own child said that. And it put, it took the air out of the balloon, but the reality is that not everybody's going to heaven. Only those who have placed their trust in Jesus. And so the scene in Sheol or the grave widens. The prisoners are at ease together. Well, that would be true if you were in prison unjustly. They do not hear the voice of their taskmaster. Think of Israel and Egypt being whipped or anybody who's been in slavery. The small and the great are there. The slave and the free from his, uh, the slave is free from his master. That's true. So in some sense, if you've trusted in the, the God of the Bible, then you are free. But the issue is one of trust. See, Job is romanticizing the grave. Because there are people who believe that when you die, all your pain stops. But I have to tell you, if you're not a Christian, that's not true. Luke 16 gives us uh, an insight into a, a rich man who feasted sumptuously every day. He dies and he ends up in torment. I know it's not popular and it's probably not pleasant to hear. But... That's the biblical reality. An Italian Jew named Primo Levi recounts a dream full of horror which has not ceased to visit me, he says. It's a dream within a dream in which he begins in peace, perhaps sitting at a table with his family or friends or in the green countryside, and yet he feels a deep and subtle anguish, the definite sensation of an impending threat. And then everything collapses and disintegrates around me, he says. The scenery, the walls, the people, while the anguish becomes more intense and more precise. Now everything has changed to chaos. I am alone in the center of a gray and turbid nothing. And now I know what this thing means. And I also know that I have always known it. I am the, in the lager or the concentration camp. Once more, and nothing is true outside of the lager. All the rest was a brief pause, a deception of the senses, a dream. My family, nature, and flower, my home. Now this inner dream, this dream of peace is over, and in the outer dream, which continues, a well-known voice resounds, a single word, not imperious, but brief and subdued, in the dawn command of Auschwitz, a foreign word, feared and expected, Get up. The voice of the slave driver casts a long shadow. The nightmare shadow of that voice never left Primo Levi. Perhaps it echoed in his mind at the time of his death in the 1960s, very possibly of suicide. You see, you can romanticize death, but life is a gift, amen? And eternal life is a gift but can I just say to you, please know where you're going. Please know where you're going. Eternity is way too long to be wrong about your soul. Jesus said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? I was doing a memorial service some years ago. Uh, a person had perished, and that person was part of a big company, and so a lot of the employees were in the church building at the time, or actually at another location. I preached the gospel. I just I preached that verse of Jesus. What will it profit a man if he forfeits the whole world, or uh, uh, gains the whole world, forfeits his soul? And so I, I saw a man, and he was locking eyes with me. I gave an altar call. Nobody came forward. 
I'm in the food line, and this man tugs on my shirt and says, can I talk to you? I said, sure you can. He said, everything in me wanted to come down the aisle when you gave that altar call. But I just couldn't do it because I didn't want to be embarrassed in front of my coworkers. He said, I am that man, and I'm concerned about my soul. Would you tell me how to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior? I said, most definitely. We walked a few feet away. I led him in the sinner's prayer, and he gave his life to Jesus. See, there are people everywhere. On the outside, they're going to fight it. <laughs> they may be in your company. They may be in your family, but they know they need the Lord. And it's times like this that we know. You see, it's times of trial that we really understand how much we need God. And I would submit to you, brothers and sisters, that's why the book of Job's in the Bible. Because so many of you, and you are the few and the brave who have braved now the third chapter of the book of Job. Man, you guys are awesome. But you've done it because you know. You know that this is oftentimes what drives people to Jesus, is trouble and trials. And so Job is going to wind down and uh, I just have to, to tell you that there's no light in this chapter. <laughs> so it's just going to get a little tougher. We'll wind down, and I'm going to bring you some hope and light at the end. Why is light given to him who suffers? Maybe Job thinking of himself, 20. And life to the bitter soul. Who long for death, but there is none. Dig for it more than hidden treasures. Who rejoice greatly. They exult when they find the grave. It's almost like someone... Uh, hooked up to a life, uh, what do you call the machine that keeps you alive? Uh, what is it? Life support, thank you. Life support machine who wants it desperately to be unplugged but can't find death. He says, why is light given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? Remember earlier, uh, Satan had said, you, you've put a hedge about him. That's why I can't get to him. Now God's hedged him in, but in a different way. It's almost like he's got the razor wire around his life, and he can't get out of the trial. And that's often how trials feel. For my groaning, it could literally be my shrieking, comes at the sight of my food, and my cries pour out like water. It's like my food is my groaning, and my tears are my drink. For what I fear, and remember Job used to make sacrifices for his family just in case they sinned against God. What I fear comes upon me. What I dread befalls me. I heard the stat. You people said it. 90-something percent of what we worry about never happens to us, but I'm in the 8%. <laughs> what I worried about did happen. How many of you are worriers or you know a worrier? Now, worriers, okay, you can confess it. It's good for the soul. Worrying is like being in a rocking chair. You do a lot of moving, but you get absolutely nowhere. I'm worried about this. I'm worried about that. I'm worried about this. I'm worried about that. I'm worried about And then you have Christians that come along and say, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And they, they write it off the Bible verse, and they hand it to you, and they put it in your bologna sandwich when you go to work. And you worry because worry is a very natural human battle. Jesus, when he says, don't worry, don't be afraid, he says it for a reason because we do worry and we are afraid. And Job says, look, man, I, I'm hemmed in, but my, my thought is that it's God, 23, who hedged me in. My groaning, it's my food. My tears are my water. What I feared happened. I made sacrifices for the kids. I did everything I could do. What have I done wrong? I'm not at ease, nor am I quiet. I am not at rest. But turmoil, trouble comes. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know who said that? David said that in Psalm 22. Do you know who repeated that on the cross? Jesus. My God, my God. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We have the problem of evil, 
but the power of the gospel. And the God who came to save us knows what it's like to be in trouble. The Lord is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. In Psalm 22, 11, he says, Don't be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. And Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Father, we thank you so much for Job chapter 3, as heavy and dark as it is. We know that our God came and suffered, and he suffered in my place. He suffered for Job. He suffered for David, for every precious person in this room, everyone who has lived or will ever live. Jesus died for the cumulative sins of all mankind, for the whole world. But we must trust in the gift that Jesus gives. It's not something that just is automatic. It's paid for, but we must receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, as the one who delivers us from death itself, from sin and death. And so if you're here and you've not met Jesus, you're not sure that you're a Christian tonight, just make sure and cry out to him with your head and heart bowed, Lord Jesus, save me. I am sorry for my sin. Pray it if it's you. I'm sorry. I've sinned against you. Pain has driven me away, whatever it might be. Lord, I repent of my sin, and I receive Jesus as my Lord, my Savior, my King. I pray you change me from the inside out. Change my heart. Lift my burdens. Give me your peace. Lord, for those who have prayed, would you just bless them with assurance, with hope, with the power of your Holy Spirit. You said in this world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And we thank you, Lord, that because we're in Christ, we are overcomers. And even in the book of Job, we can see the light the glimmer of the gospel, the good news that the Messiah was coming for people like Job, for people like me, for those who may listen to this later who don't know hope. May you renew their hope, renew their strength as they look to you, the author and finisher of their faith. In Jesus' name.